0: This morning's New Testament lesson is built into today's sermon, so will you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power, come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. I'm not sure when it happened, but somewhere along the line, I started collecting crosses. It's an occupational hazard, I think. I've got enough that I have a wall full of them in my office, all with different origin stories, gifts, and souvenirs from mission trips and travels near and far. Some of them are shiny and polished. Others have the rough edges of an old rugged cross. I have one made out of a bullet from the Liberian War, a visible depiction of the suffering that humans can inflict upon one another. Another is carved from a felled tree in one of the oldest forests in Colorado, a reminder of the circle of life, death, and new life to come. I have one that was beautifully crafted by Haitian artists whose metalwork is pounded out of discarded oil drums, a way that beauty emerges from the waste of our resource consumption. I have one welded together with two nails, and another made from the wood of an old church pew that supported worshipers for decades. A former student gifted me one crafted out of fiberglass as a final project for her materials class as a civil engineering student. She got an A on it. Molly made me one last week out of construction paper, shells, and pipe cleaners because she very much wanted to tape her handiwork to this collection on my wall. And the gift of that collection is that it reminds me of how complex and multi layered this central symbol of our faith is. The cross is, without question, the most common and recognizable symbol of Christianity. We have crosses in our sanctuaries and on our steeples. We wear them on chains around our necks. We have our beautiful brass cross that the choir and pastors process behind, reminding ourselves that when we gather here for worship, we do so trying to follow Jesus. And on our chancel wall, the cross serves as the central focal point in this sacred space. It's strong, and it's firm, and yet detailed. I don't know if you've ever taken the time to look at it, but it's adorned on each pole with a symbol that emerges from text in the prophet Ezekiel that has throughout history then been associated with each of the four gospels, a face for Matthew's gospel highlighting Jesus' divinity, a winged lion for Mark that points us to Jesus' kingship. A calf for Luke, representing Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. A rising eagle for John, emphasizing the Spirit of Christ that rises and is with us. Each points toward an important aspect of Jesus, our Savior, who we know most clearly through the cross. So maybe it's not just a pastor problem, because crosses are everywhere. And as sometimes happens when a symbol is so common, it can take on too many meanings. Its meaning can get muddled. I see the crosses on my wall and it causes me to think of the stories of who gave them to me or my travels along the way, and I discard the importance of Jesus' presence at the center. Or it can be so common that we walk right by it without any notice at all. But I wonder if there isn't a third issue at play. I wonder if as much as we cling to this symbol of our faith, we avoid having to spend too much time with it because doing so forces us to try to make sense of the cross. It requires us to come to terms with the question of why Jesus had to die in such a gruesome way and how that could possibly save us. It plunges us into a sense of mystery that requires a deep measure of faith. And so, we focus on the journey Jesus makes to the cross, or we lean into His teaching and His miracles and His healings because we avoid the cross as best possible waiting around for that empty tomb on Easter. Perhaps if we just look the other way, if we're conveniently busy on the night of that Good Friday service, we can avoid having to deal with it. But the season of Lent is upon us. And if there was ever a time to wade into the waters of this mystery and to confront the cross in all of its beauty and pain, its ugliness and redemption, this is it. So for the coming six weeks, we're going to unpack some, though certainly not all, of the ways that the cross has taken on meaning through Scripture and throughout the life of the church. Each rendering is rooted in God's Word and has been unpacked by theologians trying to make sense of this mysterious and salvific sign. And my suspicion is there will be weeks in the next six that make you a little uncomfortable and some where you feel cradled in love. So my charge to you this Lent is to sit in that tension to engage in the conversation, to wrestle with us as Emma and Amanda and I work out our own salvation with fear and trembling before you. Rather than look away, I hope that you will stand with me at the foot of the cross. For it is Jesus' death and resurrection together, more than anything else in Scripture, that plunges us into the depth of God's mysterious love. It's what makes us Christian. So, we begin this week with a reading from Colossians, the second chapter, verses 13 to 15. And in just three short verses, Paul packs a punch in presenting us with the power of the cross and the forgiveness it offers. So, listen now to the Word of God. And when you were dead in trespasses, in sin, he means, And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning that we are Gentile, not Jewish, in that time, God made you alive together with him. When he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record, the bond, the debt that stood against us with all its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So here we begin. Paul is speaking to the church, a group of individuals rendered both imperfect in their being and in their doing, about the way that we are forgiven Because of Jesus' death. Colossians says that if we were trying to earn our way into God's grace by bloodline or by merit, we clearly do not measure up. Sin separates us such that we cannot dig ourselves out of trouble. And I don't think that I have to make a case for the brokenness of the world today. We're surrounded by sin. On a global scale, Ukraine is fighting an unprovoked war with Russia, where civilians and children this morning are dying in a brutal conflict. And the world is trying to curb Russia's aggression with punishing sanctions. At home, we're collecting food for ICM during Lent, and thousands are going to walk in the Hunger Walk this afternoon because our resource and wealth distribution in this state means that one in six Experience hunger on a regular basis. In our own mundane lives, we have to admit that we have fallen short in our actions and attitudes and what we have done and what we have left undone. Psalm 51 summed it up for us For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that we are imperfect. Sin separates us from one another and God at every level. But we also long for it not to be that way. We long to be forgiven, to be set free from the weight of all that we carry around, to live in a world that looks like the peaceable kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. And sometimes we summon our Protestant work ethic and think that we can earn our way out of this reality if we just do enough good things that will offset all of the ways that we have failed. But the truth is we can't save ourselves. And so Paul this morning points us to the cross and offers us this good news. It's not us, but God, through Jesus on the cross, who forgives God makes us dead to sin and alive with him through Jesus' act of forgiveness, which we know because our sin is literally nailed to the cross. The sin of the world, Paul says, is assumed by Jesus, who died for us. We are forgiven and freed by his death to live in the light of God's grace, and thanks be to God for that. This classical narrative is deeply grounded in Scripture and has given us the understanding that theologians call substitutionary atonement theory. The idea that Jesus serves as a substitute, bearing our burden, experiencing the punishment, holding the debt for all of our sin on our behalf. And Jesus was, in other words, his death was necessary Because only a perfect human can set us right with God. And Jesus was perfect because he was uniquely atoned at one with God. So this gift of forgiveness from God through Jesus gives us new life and freedom and grace that we don't deserve. And it is really, really, really good news. We say it every week because we need to hear it again and again. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. But if what you're hearing, if that explanation makes you squirm a little bit, you're not alone. Because if you push too hard on this reality, this story of Christ as our sacrificial substitute, we start to get into some difficult waters. For all of the good news that this explanation offers, it also runs the risk of making God the Father, the the first person of the Trinity appear cruel. Shall we say? It causes us to ask where is the justice in killing Jesus who is perfect and doesn't need to be forgiven? Does this mean that God needed a sacrifice and the sacrifice of his own son, no less, to set right some anger that God had toward us because of our sin? Does it glorify suffering? And the reality is that each of those critiques is real and perhaps justified. Our theories of atonement reflect our human wrestling and our efforts to make sense of the cross, which is ultimately phenomenal and mysterious and a divine gift. When we look upon the cross, we're trying to make sense of a senseless death in Jesus' crucifixion. And not only to make sense of it, but to transform this pivotal event, the crucifixion, into something that is merely the state's power to kill, into God's power to forgive and reconcile through sacrificial love. So even if our explanation of this divine gift is imperfect, it doesn't make the forgiveness Jesus offers us in the cross any less true. We can hold it all in tension, all of those things that make us feel uncomfortable, and look again at the cross and say, is there yet something beautiful here, something true, something saving? And when we do, in the center of the cross, what we find is the heart of God who desires to be for us. If forgiveness is God's gift on the cross, then when we look at the cross, we see not just senseless death, but God who is for us even to the point of it costing God of God suffering for us. Theologian Fleming Rutledge carries this thread line through. She says everything that the Son of God has done during the entire span of his life, from incarnation to crucifixion, was done for us. No one in creation has ever been able to live for us in the way that Jesus does because he's forgotten begotten of the Father and not created. The gift Jesus offers in forgiveness is that the weight of judging ourselves or others, of sorting out what is owed to right our wrongs, all of that is removed from our hands. Jesus Christ becomes the judge. But rather than putting us on trial, he steps in for us to be the one judged as well. If all of this feels too theoretical or philosophical, I can understand. As much as our spirits yearn to be set free from sin and the guilt that we carry around, the concept that Jesus forgave our sins on a cross some 2,000 years ago can feel like a conceptually great idea that doesn't change our day to day life. But what if it translated into actual debt forgiveness? into actual dollars and cents. A number of churches in recent years have tried to reflect the power of Jesus' forgiveness and make this divine gift real in human lives. Inspired by none other than John Oliver on his show last week tonight, a church in Bristol, Tennessee took $10,000 and paid off over a million dollars in medical debt for more than 500 individuals and families in Tennessee and Georgia. In the sin of our broken insurance systems that hold people captive to crippling medical debt, this church took the gift of forgiveness and made it tangible in the lives of struggling families by literally forgiving a real debt. The church expected nothing in return. You didn't have to write them a thank you note. You didn't have to go to worship there. The families did nothing to earn this gift. They didn't apply. They didn't receive debt forgiveness because they'd been particularly good people. They did nothing except find themselves in a state of indebtedness that was impossible to escape after health events beyond their control. And the effect of forgiveness of this debt is that they were set free. Free from burden and fear and anxiety. Free to live. Free to give back to their communities in gratitude. Free. Imagine receiving a letter in the mail that the medical bills you had no way of paying were suddenly erased. Now imagine that's how God feels about all of us and the weight and burdens that we are carrying around. It's as if God adds all of that up and says, through my son Jesus, I'll take that on for you. My love for you is so great that whatever the cost, even the cost of my son's life, I will erase that debt and the burden that you carry. You are forgiven you didn't earn it, you don't deserve it. It's a divine math problem that makes no more sense than $10,000 being able to erase a million. But through my son's death on the cross, you are forgiven and you are free. At the center of the cross, we find forgiveness. And when we gaze upon the cross in all its beauty and mystery, we find a God who is for us, even to the point of death. And that, my friends, is good news. As we journey together this Lent, may we walk in the light of that undeserved grace. Amen.